God could have set the universe up in any way, shape, or form. When you become familiar with the laws of nature and the laws of physics, it's almost as if we think that they had to be that way. That the law of cause and effect would say that, uh, you know, there has to be a cause and that cause has to be greater than the effect and it can't be any other way. It didn't have to be that way. He could have set up a world where there was no cause for an effect. He could have set up a world where the cause was one-tenth of the effect. But he set it up in a certain fashion. And what we find is that from the very beginning, he starts off with a bold statement that absolutely splits the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it doesn't split the world down the middle. There is no even percentages. But it makes man choose and it divides the world about those who, in humility, will believe in the God that created the universe. And then all the others, and God, as if to say, sits back after that one statement from the very beginning of time and says, what is your alternative? What is your rational alternative? You see, he could have set it up that there may have been maybe possibly... Ten decent theories about why we're here, who we are. And you would have to read through maybe all of these philosophies and, and spend your entire life going through possibly a book of a thousand pages and, and you would get to maybe 999 and you'd go, you know what, I, I think I'm kind of starting to get dissuaded this way. But instead, he starts off, he doesn't want... A consensus. He doesn't build like I would, I would say, in a courtroom. I, I would, let's start off with what we could agree with. And then I'll leave a little breadcrumb trail over here of these little bitty things. And, and, and logically and rationally, I'm going to bring you over to my position so that you'll see and understand. God doesn't do that at all. He starts off in the very beginning. He says, in the beginning, God. Questions? What's your alternative? And that's what we begin to study. God's story about himself and the eternal truths. These eternal moral edicts that he's given forth. I hope you listened to Billy last Sunday. In his lesson, he took an example from Matthew 19 that I can't think of a clearer example. Where when, they, when Jesus is asked... He doesn't go through some convoluted kind of, you know, uh, machinations of the mind and all the gymnastics. What did he say? He goes, oh, you're asking me about marriage and divorce? He goes, well, haven't you read? From the beginning. He goes back to the very rudiments of creation and said, this is the way it was supposed to be. This is the edict of God. This is the pattern. This is what's ordained by God. And if you break that as an individual, you have consequences. When families leave those basic truths, they suffer. When communities throw that off and think they can decide for themselves, something begins to go awry. People that don't believe, they don't see this, but it's like jumping off the roof. It's like the, it's like the laws of gravity. You can't break it without, there's some consequence. That's the way he set the world up. And when we start reading, we don't get very far at all. And we see these eternal edicts that he molded the world. You can try to set up society any way you want. But when you go against God's edicts, 
A lot of what we see around us is what? It's, it's the result. It's the suffering result of breaking his moral laws. Now we've got Christians that are so confused, they're trying to go around and think maybe we can come up with a system or a government or an institution or another program or another law that'll take away the consequences of this sin. That's just not going to work, is it? It doesn't work. We haven't gotten very far in Genesis, but we are going to go to verse 26 and 27. We're just going through the highlights of our Bible. We're going through the verses that maybe you have underlined. We're going through those things that you have, you know, notes on or whatever. We're just looking at some of these things and where you've cross-referenced in your Bible. God created man. And when he came to that point, he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and over the cattle and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. What does it mean? Right away, we begin to ask the question, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Hmm. You know, most commentators will just hit two or three big ones. I was pleasantly surprised when you look at the AP study Bible, there's no less than about 10 different qualities. I don't even know if that's an exhaustive list. We may find out someday that there are all kind of things that we never even thought of. We're in God's eternal sovereignty and his omniscience that there's some all kind of things that separate us from the animal kingdom. I'm just going to be like those commentators take the easy way out. So I'm going to give you two or three big ones that I think really separate us from the rest of the world, the rest of his creation. Number one, to be made in the image of God is that man is a rational being. And I don't mean that we're always rational. When you get married, you, re you realize, don't you? Yeah, my wife lets me know all the time when I'm irrational. Why are you right racing this guy next to you in a minivan? Well, it's because he cut me off. It's not necessarily rational, but I can be rational, right? That's just like the philosophers that argue, well, man is a religious being, so how can you explain that? Some of the atheists come along and go, well, not every man is religious. Well, of course, but in general, that's the capacity. Well, man has a rational, we're rational people. You know what characterizes rationality? Asking questions, right? Just like when God asked, you know, what he said in Job 38 and 4, he said, what, where was thou when thou created this, when I laid the foundations of the earth? You know, it's that question. He's not, he's not, he doesn't want to know where Job was. He's not reminding Job, hey, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? He, you know, where was thou, Job? No, he's, he said, look, these are the questions that man has been asking. And we ask questions because we're rational. We don't just go about our lives. We ask and we say, hey, where did we come from? How did it all begin? How did life begin? And then we, and then we, we make a judgment. Is that a relevant question? Is it a relevant question whether or not we just popped up out of uh, amoeba after billions of years or were we created by a creator? Certainly that's a relevant question. And then the rational mind is able to say what? The answer that you give me, I can weigh it in the balances and say, is it a rational answer? You know, when I'm crossing the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, maybe on my way to Rome or something, there'd be four or five hours of darkness. 
not a whole lot going on. Everybody's sleeping in the back, and it's a good time to really try to, to talk to the individual that you're with. And invariably, I hear these things. Well, uh, they know. Well, they know how life started, Scott. I mean, that we've got this thing. They know how life began and spontaneously generated. Well, they, they don't know, but they're pretty sure. You know, and they are the scientists. And so if you say something, well, what's your PhD in? Are you, are, are you a biologist? I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Well, then you're not qualified. You know, in a court of law, that's very effective. You know, in rationality, that's not relevant, is it? But I get it. So then you say, okay, well, how about Dr. Uh, you know, Jonathan Serfati? That was the, you know, the chess champion in New Zealand. You know, he's a physical chemist, a PhD. But, well, he doesn't believe in Darwinism. He's not qualified. He doesn't believe in it. Something's wrong with him. He's on the outside. Oh, so now you've got to believe in Darwinism to be qualified. So what I try to do is I just cut through all the chase. And here's a technique that may be useful for you is just, just come up front with it and say, well, who's qualified? to talk about the origins of life on earth. Who's qualified in your mind? And just throw it out there for them. This is what they're going to love. You just say, how about Richard Dawkins? Is he qualified? He better be. He's made an entire living and millions of dollars of blaspheming your God, of saying that you are delusional. If you're still a Christian, believing in the God of the Bible, in today's world, you got a psychological problem. He was sitting in the chair at the college there at Oxford for years up until 2008 and was the chair of the college that said, uh, this is the, the public understanding for science. If anybody were to know, Richard Dawkins would know. I mean, that's his duty to know because he, he's proselytized this idea. He's a preacher of this idea. He is full in with his faith. So if anybody's qualified, it's Richard Dawkins. Now, when you pick up that DVD at home that I know you all have that you should watch every five or ten years, Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, with Ben Stein, just fast forward to the interview with Richard Dawkins. They're talking about intelligent design. Richard Dawkins says, remember this was already outlawed in the schools, already outlawed in the universities. This is just some made-up religious thing of, People of faith trying to get their view and, you know, no. But he's asked about it. He says this. It's possible. It's possible that someday we will find that there's an alien from a different galaxy that we haven't discovered yet. That's a much higher life form. And that higher intelligence has come here in the distant past and planted and seeded life. But that alien would have had to have evolved by Darwinistic principles and mechanisms. They could not have just spontaneously generated. They couldn't have just appeared. Wow. That's not what the guy next to me would like to hear. Dr. Dave Miller said, what's that an admission of about intelligent design? Is there such a thing when Richard Dawkins is trying to explain it? He goes on to say, it may be that someday we discover a signature of a designer. 
You know why he said that? Because he knew it was already there. He knew what Francis Crick ran into. He knew that the guy that discovered DNA, that's a staunch atheist, was the one that came up with panspermia in the first place and said, I guess it's aliens. Because he couldn't explain it any other way. So yes, it's an admission that intelligent design is real, but what's, what is the admission here? The real admission is, well, they're not sure, but they're pretty sure. They, know, they don't know, but they're pretty sure. Does that sound like a guy that's pretty sure how life started? And then he says of an alien that we have no proof of, of a galaxy we've never seen, we know that they would have had evolved from Darwinistic principles. Does that sound rational to you? That's not even rational. I'm not saying that. I mean, it's in his imagination, and he's telling us how they would have had to evolve. But then he makes this bold statement and said, they could not have just spontaneously generated. Richard, the entire Western civilization has steered a course of faith in the fact that you all have told them that life can spontaneously generate. You know what? They have proof of that. You ask them, they say, well, we know it happened once we're here. Well, not rational. You see, that's the rational mind. You're able to weigh this in the balance. You say, okay, well, if it's so rational and that's an irrational answer, how come everybody's not on our side? It's interesting. The psalmist says in 10 and 4, he said, the wicked in the ignorance? No. Because he hadn't been given enough information? No. Because he was born in the wrong country? No. Because he was in the wrong era? No. But the wicked in the pride of his countenance says he will not require it. For all his thoughts are, there is no God. The second thing I'd like to mention is that man is made as a moral being. We've talked about this. We want to know what's right, what's wrong. We evaluate what's evil, what's good. We've always done that. And we've said in the past that God is the sovereign authority and author of eternal moral truth. And on the other side, you have moral relativism, period. That's it. That's the only two sides. That's the conflict from the garden all the way through life. And we've said man is a moral being. And the atheist can't explain that at all. In fact, how rational is it for Richard Dawkins, that thinks we've spontaneously generated possibly or been seeded by an alien, since there really is no real moral right and wrong, but he calls your God evil. And he goes to great pains to try to describe how bad your idea of God is. How dare an atheist steal the language of the religious community and try to use it against you? They can't use the word evil. That's a, that's a value-laden word. They can't, he's not allowed to use that. Right? Richard, find your own word. You guys don't believe in good and evil. Even when an atheist takes it to a logical conclusion and says, no, you're right, we're just random molecular action, there is no real eternal moral truth. How do they live? They try to live like there is one, don't they? Not one of them are consistent. Not one of them are consistent. They can't be. Man is a moral being. The third thing is, is that man has an immortality. There is a part of man that's immortal. That's the Spirit of God, isn't it? For instance, 
We read in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, when talking the details of the pinnacle and purpose of God's creation, God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And now we read in Ecclesiastes 12 and 3, or 12 and 7, as, Sol as Solomon is talking there, and he's talking about just this abysmal life of no purpose and, and vanity of vanities, and it's all just a drudgery of life. And then, and then what do you have? Well, then it's the end of your days, and then as you're going down and all of this is happening, and then in the end the dust returneth unto the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns unto God who gave it. Man has a spirit given to him by God. What happened in Genesis 2 and 7? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He jump-started man with air. Is that right? Let me tell you this. Let's, 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 let's look at this. You know, Kelly did not want me to do this word study with you, by the way. Anyway, I'm going to do a little bit of it. The, the word soul there, you realize it's the same word used for animals, right? So men, men have a soul, animals have a soul. It's the living animation in us. Is that the soul talked about in Genesis 2 and 7? Most writers say it is. I disagree. I'm going to make a bold conjectural statement here pretty soon, but I'm going to try to get you where I am first. And that is that, that word soul is also used in different contexts. For instance, in 1 Kings chapter 17, 21 and 22, when Elijah is praying to God to save the widow's son, what did he pray? He prayed that his soul would return to his body and give him back life. And God heard his prayer and returned the soul back to the body and gave him life. Is that the soul? That's just the animation? Sounds more like he's talking about the part that we talk about is the spirit, isn't it? They're used interchangeably sometimes, so it's the context in which you understand it. Number two, what is the breath of God? That word breath in the Hebrew can be translated as spirit, not breath. I know. I know before gift tell gets on to me. It's in Genesis 1 and 2. It's this different word. That's a word that equates and is the equivalent to the pneuma in the New Testament. That means breath, inspiration, spirit. All, I get that. Wind. But that's a different word. But this word mostly translated as breath, can be spirit. For instance, in Job uh, 27 and 3, Job says, my life is yet with, whole within me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. Spirit of God, it's the same word for breath in Genesis 2 and 7. Now, if you're, if you're King James, derivative of King James, New King James, American Standard Version, ESV, that's what it says. Now, those of you that within NIV, you're like, well, he just misquoted that. Because it says, it says the breath of God is in my nostrils, doesn't it? NIV, I think the New American Standard Bible says that. So I, the argument here is not who's right, which translating committee is right. That's not what I'm saying. Why were there two different words that the translation committee had to choose from? Yeah, they weren't making up stuff. They had two words, either spirit or breath. Now, here's my final argument. I think it's the strongest. How do you define death? You define death by, well, let's, let's call Texas A&M School of Veterinary Medicine. They're going to talk about heartbeat, circulatory, respiratory. They're going to talk about brain waves. They're going to talk about all that. That's okay, great. How about you call John Hopkins or University of Arizona Medical School? How are they going to define death for humans? Same thing, circulatory, cardiac kind of thing, pulmonary systems, all that, brain waves. 
Did you know that you are absolutely, there is a chasm of difference between us and the rest of the world right now on this question of what death is. How do you define death? Hopefully, it's the same way God did in James 2.26. When that spirit departs a body, you're dead. In Acts chapter 5, when Ananias fell down to the ground, he gave up what? The breath of life? No, the ghost. When Sapphira walked in, she gave up her spirit. Spirit apart from the body is dead. That's death. Okay, so then what's life? The marriage of spirit and body. So that Jehovah God formed man of the dust of the ground. At that point, what was Adam? Pile of dirt. Oh, he had all the cells. He had all the makeup. He's all ready. He's got the brain. He's got the neurons. He's got everything ready. Pile of dirt. Until what? Until breath? No. Till God, a spirit, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, man became a living soul. I submit to you that that breath of life was the spirit given by God. And in that regard, every man, woman, and child that has ever lived or ever will live has the breath of God in them. Meaning the 60 million children that have never been allowed to see the light of day because of convenience had the breath of God in them, even if they were using their mother's respiratory system to live. Now, that separates us from the animal world, doesn't it? I don't like this phrase, we're just a higher form of animal. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I don't like where it comes from. I don't, I don't like where it leads, and I, and I don't like the, the implications. We're not just a higher form of animal. You were made in the image of God, and that separates you from the rest of the world. It separates us completely. You know what? In, in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, what did he say? And, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heaven, and the cattle, and over all the earth. And every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Oh, we're at the top of the food chain. That's not what that means. It doesn't mean you're at the top of the food chain. It means you are the purpose and the pinnacle of God's creation. The very purpose. I'm going to go really out on a limb right now and say, I know the social pressures. I know the cultural shift that's going on in the church. But I'm still going to say this. Creation... In the environment, in the animals, have no intrinsic value outside of the purpose of creation, meaning they were made for man. God made a home perfectly suited for man. And without man in the picture, it means nothing means nothing. When people get that reversed, you can tell because it gets really ugly real fast. I told you about Jacques Cousteau on a Wednesday night once. We, we talked about him. I know a lot of you weren't in that class, but I'm not going to go through that again. But, you know, Jacques Cousteau was not a scientist. He was a cinematographer. He wanted to be the greatest underwater cinematographer the world had ever seen. That's all he wanted to do. Notice I didn't say anything about the environment. What happened to him? Where Before he died, 
He was a radical environmentalist. Throughout his life, you can read and, and, and discern that he's going through this transition. He's going through this conversion. And then he gets to the other side and he speaks at an Earth Day in 1993. And at Earth Day in 1993, or excuse me, the Earth Summit, which a lot of us were saying, hey, this is going, this is not where we need to be going. This is, this is a godless worldview. And people are like, oh, what do you got against the animals? Well, Jacques Cousteau stood up in 93 and said, 350,000 people need to die a day above and beyond our normal death rate throughout the world. 350,000 more need to die every day to return the oceans to their health and make them sustainable. He goes, I, I know you don't want to hear that. That's difficult, but it's true. You know, I said that one time, and an eight-year-old girl sitting in the pew looked at her mom, and she goes, well, he didn't kill himself, did he? That's out of the mouth of babes. You know, he didn't take his family and go, since I'm the leader of this movement, and I would never ask somebody to do something I'm not willing to do as a leader, then I'll show you the way. No, no. He gets so skewed. Why? Because of the deification of nature and the flip-flopping of the things that God put down in order from the very beginning. You know, we haven't been able to say anything about sin in a long time, right? We kicked God out of school, kicked prayer out of school, kicked Bible out of school in 1962, 1963. And since that time, we haven't even been able to talk about sin in the public square, not in the public school. You can't talk about sin. But, but have you noticed? It's making a comeback. Oh, I'm, I'm starting to hear it. It's from the very, very top. It's from Congress. It's people like uh, Representative Cortez saying, we're sinning against Mother Earth. So you're allowed to talk about sin now because now you're sinning against Mother Earth. Nancy Pelosi said, we're sinning against Mother Earth. Turn with me, will you? If you, if you want, or just take notes on Romans chapter 1. We'll start in verse 21. Last time, I think we went there too. Well, we went to 18. We started in 18, right? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hinder the truth and unrighteousness. There's a wrath of God for the things that he's about to talk about. It's not good, but we'll start for time's sake and just start in verse 21. Because knowing God, they glorified him not as God, neither gave thanks, but became vain in their reasoning and their senseless heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God for the likeness of an image of corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart and to uncleanness that their bodies should be dishonored amongst themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The word creature there is the same word for creation. The NIV, I think, says things created. That's, that's what the word means. But in this context of what he's just said, creature fits just fine, but it doesn't matter, does it? Creature or created, doesn't matter. You see the deification in nature? see the flip-flop there? That's what he's talking about. Let me ask you this. Well, 
I know our young people don't know the word. You guys don't know what like means? It's a four-letter word, and it's, it's an analogy. It, you know, it's not like this, but it's an analogy that says this isn't exactly that, but it's close to that. That's what, right? So now I'm going to use the word, try, try to use it properly. We've always said, you know, if you miss Wednesday night to go to a soccer game, uh, that could be your idol. That's like idolatry. And we said that's like idolatry. And we were like, mm, okay, I've misprioritized. But then I read the Old Testament, and I'm like, well, I don't, I don't see myself there. You know, Bible tells you that covetousness is idolatry. That'd be a great lesson. Dig that one out. But when we read this passage in Romans chapter 1, is that talking about the idolatry of Canaan in the Old Testament or is that talking about the idolatry in Rome in Paul's day? Or is it talking about the environmental movement of today? It's not like Old Testament idolatry. It is Old Testament idolatry. That's what you're seeing. And then you ask yourself the question, why did the Holy Spirit talk about idolatry on one hand and then shift over to homosexuality and sexual perversion? And then shift back to the environmental movement and then shift back to homosexuality? Can they not follow a paragraph? Can they not follow a topical sentence? What's going on? Why is, what's God saying? Can you explain with your understanding why homosexuality, sexual perversions, sexual gratification is intricately linked with idolatry. If you can't, we probably need to talk about it in a future date. There's one other thing that's linked to idolatry in the Old Testament always. It's passing your children through the fire. Little infant. That mama carried for nine months. Not as valuable, though, is it, as having the God smile on you so your life can be better. They actually killed babies so that their lives would be better. Reminds me of what one woman said in the Christian Chronicle. I don't, I don't recommend that paper, but she was quoted in the Christian Chronicle saying, I voted for my Christian values. I voted for jobs Healthcare and housing. Number one, there's an argument that that's not the government's job on any way, shape, or form. Those aren't Christian values. We'll talk about that maybe later. But I, the first question I'd love to ask her is, when did God ever judge a nation for not producing enough jobs? But ma'am, go back and read God's edicts. And when did he have his cup full? When was his patience run out? Three things. He judged nations for three things. Idolatry, homosexuality, and passing your children through the fire. In America's cup, it filled up. How dare a Christian try to stand on the other side? Those three things. And some people will argue and say, well, is God really going to reach out and do something? That's an interesting topic, but you know what? He doesn't even have to. Remember when we said eternal moral order, eternal moral edicts, when you break those, there's a natural consequence. 
God could just sit back and say, I'm going to watch this happen. In other words, you've made this brew, you've made this bed, now you're going to lie in it. Your society has accepted these things. No, I'm not going to come in and save you anymore. That woman was doing something that was very natural. If you think I'd be too harsh, it's just very natural. It's natural in all of us. There's instinctual, if I could use that with human beings, there's this instinctual natural inclination and natural propensity of people. And then there's this disciplined thing, the Bible. Now, the natural inclination is something you have to discipline yourself. And we're going to talk about that in the next lesson as well. You have to discipline what the natural inclination is with God's edicts. You've heard your whole life, people yearn for freedom. People yearn for liberty. True? <laughs> no. No, they don't. You go, what do you mean? No, they do not. The natural inclination of people is security, safety, and to be taken care of. The moral order, the moral value is liberty and freedom, and it takes courage, it takes sacrifice, and it takes character, and it has to be taught, nurtured, and grown, and fostered. Why did the young man at Tiananmen Square, why didn't that work? He stood there in front of that tank. It was an iconic photo. That's the most amazing thing I've ever seen somebody take a stand. And you know what? It mattered nothing to China because the, the commander in the tank stood there with his turret right on him, but he never turned it around, turned his back the other way, and rolled back to the next tank with his turret on him. And that commander could have turned his turret around and they could have all dominoed effect all the way back to the political party headquarters in Beijing. China today would be a different story. But it was one man alone. Because people don't cherish freedom and liberty. They cherish being taken care of. You know, when we went to the Ukraine on this mission trip, it was absolutely astounding to talk to the translators about their grandparents who had been living and born in the Bolshevik Revolution days. And they said, when the wall came down, their grandmother or grandfather was very concerned and agitated. Why? Because for years they knew what line to get in, how long to wait, and that they would get their loaf of bread. And in the morning, the truck would come by. They knew to get in it no matter how they felt. They'd be taken to the fields. They would work for the state. They always had a job. And when the wall came down, they didn't know where the loaf was. They didn't know if they were going to get one. They didn't know how to compete in the world to try to get a job. It was so different. Folks, courage is needed and sacrificed and not everybody's up and had their character brought along to a point. You say, that's, that's not true. Really? In Exodus chapter 16 and verse 3, we have the Israelites. They had been crying out for a taskmaster. Listen, the whips of the taskmaster are too much. They're like ass. They're like vipers. We want out. They're crying out. God gives them freedom and liberty. They get out there. They see the heat of the day. They see the lack of food. They see the lack of water. What they say? Oh, if we were in the flesh pots of Egypt, 
Oh, even if you were going to kill us, at least we had bread to eat. And we say, well, they're just so different. No, they're not. They're like every civilization, every generation. That's why Ronald Reagan said every generation is one generation away from absolutely losing freedom, giving it away. Because every generation has to decide for themselves. Every generation. Folks, if people's natural inclination is for security, that's why America is an aberration. Because you've never seen it in the civilizations of man. That's why the founding fathers said for themselves, this is the first time in 5,000 years, not just the founding fathers, but the founding era, the colonists themselves, to have come out of reformation in the background and then to be on fertile soil of independence, to be their own person and be one left alone. And it was so different. And the founding fathers, for the first time ever, why don't they teach this? Ever recognize God's moral sovereign authority in eternal moral order over man. Not the divine right of kings. Not the, not the right of power. Not that government would give you rights. But they recognize God's eternal moral order and that rights come from God. And governments are just merely to secure those rights. It was the first time ever. When they signed the declaration, they could have easily been trying to come up with some way, as the university professors say, that, oh, they were trying to ensconce themselves in their power. That's the most idiotic statement I have ever heard. I've got a book at home saying, what happened to the signers? Every child in America should read it. Because they, they threw the die. They cast it all out. They chopped the log. They left the chips where they may. They signed their death warrant. They knew what was going to happen. But they cherished freedom and liberty more. And it's been that difference ever since. And for Christians, not to understand that you cherish freedom and where that freedom came from, there's never been a time in all of history where the individual rights and liberties of people have been curtailed, eroded, destroyed, where religious liberty has remained intact. Not one. They go hand in hand. That's why your First Amendment reads the way it does. And Christians should know more than anyone because they're the only group that has consistently and constantly been persecuted every time they lost the upper hand in every society. Freedom is valuable to you. And the church blossoms under freedom if people are about what they're supposed to be about. That's why the Reformation started here. Oh, I know, there were seeds in England. Yeah, how long did that grow? How many churches? Yeah, it was in obscurity. It needed something. It needed the Reformation. The Restoration needed the Reformation. It needed the Reformers. That's why Sir Isaac Newton said, you know what? If I've discovered more, if I've seen further, I, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. You know what? The, res the, the Restoration movement had preachers that stood on the shoulders of giants. That was the Reformation. So they needed the Reformation, but then they needed to get out of there. They needed to be separated by it. They needed to be in fertile soil where people were independent of thought. Freedom. In 1823, the Christian Baptist 
paper was started by Alexander Campbell. By 1837, the, the census of America, we were the fourth largest religious identification in America. In 14 years, it was a prairie fire. It didn't happen in other countries. It didn't happen in other nations. We sent missionaries after World War II from the result of the Restoration Movement back to places that Paul had preached and the church was dead, non-existent. And we don't want to revere the beginnings of this country. Oh, I know what we've heard lately about the Founding Fathers. Wow. We have somebody that's, you know, uh, running around doing something these days saying, well, they're the moral superior of the founding fathers because they don't like some of the things they did. Let me ask you this. Why was Noah saved? Why was Noah saved with eight souls by water? Because he's the best carpenter? Why was Noah saved? Well, the, you just turn to your Bible in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. It tells you why, right? He was righteous. Noah was a righteous man. Imperfect in this generation. And then it says, not only was he perfect there, but he walked with God. Now, let me ask you this, you Bible readers. Is there anything that Noah's done that you thought, wow, that's a little, that's kind of despicable. That's not good behavior. That's something that really bothers me. How in the world could Noah, the righteous, perfect man, what, 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 what's going on here? There's somebody probably sitting with, some of you, a young person that's looking that verse up and goes, Daddy, he missed something. She's right. I purposely skipped over a part. He was perfect, where? In his generations. How dare we judge him outside of the cultural generation of which he was born? And David's the same way. You look at David's life and you think, oh my. And yet you look at all the kings throughout the world 200 years prior to 200 years later. David was head and shoulders above the rest of the world. Billy even talked about Lot. Righteous Lot? <laughs> you, man, that just goes against the sensibilities. The stuff that he did was just like, come on. In his generations. God's wisdom is amazing. Jesus didn't preach the Sermon on the Mount in Genesis chapter 3. People weren't ready. Didn't change the eternal moral truth. They just weren't ready. When we talk about freedom... Yeah, you can, you can choose today or choose another day in June or you can choose another day in, in uh, May or you can, you know, not do this or turn your way, you know, yourself away from the flag. You could even choose to burn it. Yeah, you have that right. But I wonder about that young lady. I'd like to ask her what her ancestry is because I wonder how far back I would have to look to see, you know what, you had an ancestor that fought at Quezon. You had an ancestor that fought at the Chosen Reservoir. You had an ancestor that fought at Normandy to free the rest of the world and give freedom another chance throughout Western civilization that saved the world from tyranny. You had an ancestor that fought in the trenches at the Somme. Yeah, you have that right. But do you understand that right? 
Do you understand that you should be cherishing the proper things? The things that make you who you are? That you, as God gives you these blessings, to use them the way we should? Today, when you contemplate, contemplate by thanking God for freedoms that other people have given you. And then do some real soul reflection and say, how have you used your freedom? Are we going to face God someday when it's all over and say, wow, I wished I would have used them for a better purpose, but instead I was frivolous, entertainment-driven. How have we used our freedoms? But you know what the world doesn't know is, the, is what you know. And you're the only ones that know it, that a government and a system in the end can only give you fertile soil. But in the end, there is no freedom outside of Christ. Because when the Son has freed you, you are then free indeed. And that freedom ran through like a thread until it hit the declaration that reads like a theological statement. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. And amongst those rights from God is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is a derivative of personal property rights found in Exodus and Leviticus. And to secure these rights, not meet them out, not measure them out, not judge them, but to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men and derive their just power from the consent of the government because God is sovereign. And that's worth ringing a liberty bell about until it breaks when it says in Exodus 25 and 10, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all the inhabitants thereof because it makes a difference. It makes a difference. But we're not free indeed unless the Son has freed us. No matter what you're grappling with, no matter what your views are, we have a we're inundated in our culture with all kind of different alternative ideas. But there's only one that can give you liberty and freedom. And right now I'm telling you as far as the physical freedom, it is ticking away. It's in, a, it's in an hourglass of time. We're watching the last sands run out unless there's just some complete anomaly about the way the civilization's going. Because everything that's happening from the left is a forced view. And every time we want to reshape the social environment, we have to lose freedom. We have to empower government. And that's going to be detrimental to Christianity. They're coming for us. But what better place to be in the loving arms of God, a God that says, my hand is not too short to save. My ear is not dull. I want to be in his eyesight. I want to be in his arms. I want the freedom in Christ because nothing else will matter. It's coming to an end, but not us. The church and the kingdom will march on. That's the kingdom you want to be part of. And you can do so this morning as you come and stand and sing.
How he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. I heard about a mansion he has built for me in glory. And I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea. About the angels singing and the old redemption story. And some sweet day I'll sing up there the song of victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is to him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. And now our closing